This is Dylan FM, the podcast that goes deep into the work and world of Bob Dylan. You're listening to an extended episode, available exclusively to FM Plus or premium subscribers, with your host, Craig Danuloff. Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize in Literature for his songwriting. Imagine how good a book would have to be to land you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Dylan took up the subject of literature in his Nobel lecture, but the first time Bob Dylan and great literature were linked was likely way back in the early 1970s when Michael Gray first released Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan. As Gray told us, he thought some of Dylan's long lyrics could bear the scrutiny of the analysis he was being trained to apply to literature. He began working on the book with the aim of doing just that. But Song and Dance Man not only treats Dylan's work like literature, it spends the entirety of chapter two comparing it directly to the great literature of both the distant and recent pasts, from both sides of the Atlantic. As he did with folk music in chapter one, which we chronicled in our previous episode, Gray shows us what Dylan learned from the great literature. He names names, offers examples, and often shows us how Dylan applied what he learned over the years that followed. Discovering Dylan's influences is a somewhat unique process for a Bob Dylan fan. Many of us start out thinking that he'd created everything from scratch, and then we learn about the old folk songs that provided the early melodies, or even song structures, and we find out that it wasn't just a few movie lines he quoted, but much, much more. As much as Gray takes Dylan's writing and performance apart in this book, helping us to see what he's done, perhaps how he's done it, and more importantly, why it's noteworthy, he also offers this detailed expose on the knowledge and influences that Dylan soaked up. It's immense and impressive on both of their parts. In the end, I think it leaves you standing in a different and better place when you listen to Dylan's work and when you think about the man who created it. Perhaps... It also inspires you to chase down some of the sources of influence, so you yourself can see or feel more of them when you listen. Today, we chat with Michael Gray about Chapter 2 in Song and Dance Man, and we will again listen to excerpts from the book, and then Michael will react or share new and extended thoughts. The excerpts in this episode are read by Allison Rapp, a music journalist who writes for Ultimate Classic Rock, among others. You can find links to her writing and her website in the show notes. The book we're discussing is Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan, from Volume 1 of the new 50th Anniversary series release, which you can get at Amazon or other booksellers, in paperback, or on Kindle. Of course, there are links in the show notes. We're going to continue this series through all the chapters of the book, but you can read ahead or behind, and it will all work out fine. I also want to mention that Michael has been talking about Bob Dylan on a number of other great podcasts recently, and there are links to some of those in the show notes. Now, here's our discussion on Chapter 2 from Volume 1 of Song and Dance Man with Michael Gray. So, Chapter 1, Michael looked at Dylan and how he related to and reacted to the world of folk music. Chapter 2 dives straight into literature. Yeah. It, it, it immediately gets confronted by an idea that even 50 or 60 years later at the Nobel Prize resurfaced about whether music and lyrics, when they're, when they're put together, is it still literature? Let's listen to and then talk about the first two paragraphs of the chapter. Okay. 
The folk tradition, the English literary tradition. It sounds like pigeonholing, but everything connects. A very intricate chain links the two and runs from pre-Alfredian England through to contemporary America. Because we have forgotten this, we find it hard to accept Dylan as a serious artist. He has chosen a medium we are unused to taking seriously, an inseparable mixture of music and words. And we grew up finding this a cheap and trivial formula. We should look back beyond the Elizabethan age to the time when troubadours were an important part of our culture, when that culture was orally dominated and when sophisticated art was the same in kind as the heritage of the people. Just talk a little bit about how you, especially in context, the, the late 60s, early 70s, when this wasn't a common way to approach Dylan, how, how you even originally thought about this contradiction and then choosing to confront it. For a start, I, uh, I was very aware of this word troubadour that was bandied about, usually to do with, you know, Greenwich Village. So I looked into this and also I sort of, I sort of knew this stuff about um, there having been a time when popular culture and, if you like, high culture were not so separate. Um, I mean, partly because of Shakespeare, you know, he uses uh, the language of ordinary people. And when the Globe Theatre was uh, there in London and people had to crowd in and stand to listen to these plays, um, they were, you know, they were peasants. They were ordinary working Londoners. And they weren't all standing there saying, what the hell does this mean? This guy's too clever for me. You know, it was there was a commonality of language. And I sort of knew about that stuff. And then I, you know, so I researched it a bit more and found that there were all these other specifics that I could uh, bring into it. Because, uh, you know, I started, I started the whole thing from, from the assumption, having listened to a lot of him, that Bob Dylan was not only uh, uh, an artist uh, uh, and someone to be taken seriously, but that quite clearly the words and the music were of equal importance to him. I mean, you know, he has sometimes said, um, I just need... I just need words so that I can play the music. And at other times he said the opposite, you know, I'm a poet and I know it. I hope I don't blow it. So, you know, there's no point, no point asking Bob for the answer. But it was quite clear that both were of equal and great importance in his work. Uh, and of course, what was what was remarkable about him in this way was the way that he brought serious words, if you like, serious words, into pop music, if you will, into rock music, uh, combining the force of poetry, as Ricks calls it, with the power of rock and roll. Uh, and, and no one had done that before. If you like, he was, uh, as I say somewhere else, he was like uh, the last beat poet. Uh, in a way, he took all that Kerouac, Ginsberg stuff and stood on a stage with a guitar and, and recreated it, represented it in a marvelous way in the mid 60s. Yeah, so Troubadour seemed really suitable. And then I found this great essay by Adrian Bell, written in, I think, 1933, which talked about all this stuff and, and talked about the way that people who were not highly educated tended to 
have more poetic modes of expression than people who were, you know, erring on the academic side. And of course, we can all recognize that 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 that, that happens over and over again. And one of the things that Dylan loves is all his kind of um, unschooled Americana, you know. I mean, when he was at school and writing an English essay, I'm quite sure he never used the word ain't, but in his work he uses it all the time. That's that's how it is. I mean, that's a very that's a very simple example, but it's part of his great appeal, isn't it? And and of course, it's part of his great appeal when he brings the blues lyric poetry of the pre-war era into his songs, because that is bringing another form of expression, which is which is essentially from the undereducated, untutored American population. In the early reaction to your efforts to take him seriously, was it said out loud that that's not serious because it's song? When I was first listening to him, he had become a pop star. He's the person you see in Don't Look Back. Pop stars are not taken seriously as literary figures, or at least they weren't then. Nobody talked about these people as artists. That's a later development. And if I'm partly responsible for it, I'm sorry, but there it is. Because uh, everyone's an artist now, you know, Bono is an artist. I was thinking of examples far below Bono and that how, yeah, now, now as soon as you touch a guitar or yelp into a microphone. Yeah. And let's go to the other end. How did, what was your reaction to the Nobel, to the Nobel Prize? Well, I was against it in advance. I went to a conference at uh, the so-called Einstein Forum in Potsdam in Germany, just outside Berlin, which unfortunately I never, get, never got a chance to look around. This conference was all about whether Dylan should get the Nobel Prize or not. It was a couple of years ahead of when he did. And um, I think everyone else who spoke was in favor of it. I argued against it on the grounds that, first of all, that um, literature was too narrow a category for him. Although there's no denying it, he is a literary figure. He is also all these other figures. He's, he's, you know, he's a singer, he's a guitarist, he's a songwriter, he's a folk inheritor, and so on and so on. He's a wonderful uh, understander of the blues and rock and roll. So I felt that uh, calling him just a literary figure was narrowing. I also felt that um, the prize comes with a huge amount of money, and Bob Dylan was one of the last people to need it. And there were a, a good many serious, conscientious writers of novels or poems for whom it would have been a life-changing amount of money. That was, that was all part of what I felt until the morning I heard that he had won. Uh, and of course, at that point, I was absolutely thrilled. I was just thrilled because it was, it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, selfishly, it was, it was, if you like, a vindication of my early plowing of this furrow. But, uh, but unselfishly, I was just delighted because, you know, he's been such a huge figure in our lifetimes. Yeah, just like. Uh, you know, he changed. He's changed our consciousness. He's that big. So yeah, that's my uh, that's my 
two-sided view of the Nobel Prize. Right at the beginning of the chapter, you lay out in a paragraph or two, actually one paragraph, this very nice goal, I think, for chapter two. And, and let's listen to this. Dylan's work needs this wide historical context. It is no good just looking at it against a background of Coca-Cola, no good making vague references to kids in the 50s having increased spending power, or their cousins in the 60s getting tired of the stars and stripes. To go back further, beyond Presley, Guthrie, or Ginsburg, and see Dylan's art also in relation to the English literary tradition, makes more sense than simply to fool about with a few sociological guesses about what's made America tick for the last half century. That sets the stage, and the chapter then goes on to looking at Dylan in light of a long string of literary names. Uh, the first is John Bunyan, John Bunyan, and that sets an example. In effect, you show parallels and relationships in a long series of ways of how Dylan's work mirrors or plays off of the thinking style and approach of all of all of these people. And in specific ways, I gave a series of quotes from these other writers, which more or less could be quotes from Bob Dylan. You know, there's a Bunyan one that could be anywhere on John Wesley Harding. And I think that, uh, and there's one from the great Robert Browning, wonderful 19th century specialist in dramatic monologues, which is uh, another thing that Dylan has been really strong on. The dramatic monologue is... Uh, is where the work, the poem or the song is clearly addressed to a specific other person who never gets a word in, who can never defend themselves or get a word in. So, you know, do you, Mr. Jones? Uh, and in the case of Browning, there's something very similar. There's a very similar knocking of someone who has studied things in theory but knows nothing about real life. And then and then there's that fantastic coincidence, no, can't be, between Browning's use of vandals and handles and Dylan's. You'd have to read me that but for me to get it right off the top of my head. But, uh, but you, can read, you can read the Browning in Bob Dylan's voice, and it, and it works perfectly. That sets me up what I wanted to ask before we get into the examples, which is, is all of this showing how well-read and studied Dylan was, and or is it showing, you know, kind of great minds think alike, and he came to conclusions that a bunch of other smart folks throughout history have. What's the big picture of this relationship, both in general and then to, to listeners, right? Because it's all very interesting to many of us who start, and perhaps you even at the beginning, who think, oh, this is all Bob. And then you slowly realize this is Bob and 5,700 other people. Yeah. Well, I think, I think part of it is that he was very keen on English as a schoolboy. You've got to sit up close to the teacher if you want to learn anything. And he did. And um, his English teacher was the inspirational teacher at that amazing school that he went to, Hibbing High School, B.J. Rolfson. Boniface J. Robson, um, who I was lucky enough to meet and who actually came to a talk of mine that I gave in Hibbing when Hibbing was uh, still sulking about Bob Dylan having left there. 
you know, and I, I gave a special talk at the library telling them that uh, that they should stop having an adolescent sulk themselves and that they should uh, appreciate that he's written lots of beautiful stuff about that part of the country. And I, and I quoted something, you know, several things, including from uh, Never Say Goodbye of Planet Waves. But um, so that's part of it, that he was keen on English at school and has always, as we know, read books. He reads avidly, just like he watches films avidly and listens to music avidly. You know, he's he when he arrived in Greenwich Village, he'd already soaked up all this stuff from uh, from records he'd been played by John Pancake and others uh, uh, in Minnesota, uh, uh, you know, and stuff he'd heard on the radio in the middle of the night coming all the way up from somewhere in Louisiana. Um, you know, he was insatiable as a sort of sponge. And so that's part of it. As for the great minds think alike stuff, well, yeah, I mean, obviously there are general ways in which that that's bound to be the case. But uh, but great minds, do they think alike? I mean, you know, people in different ages think very different things. I mean, just to take one example, which does relate to what we're talking about here, I hope, before the age of the romantics, the romantic poets, at the cusp, uh, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th, before Wordsworth and so on, people... Uh, People didn't appreciate nature in at all the same way that they did afterwards. You know, people thought mountains were ghastly, you know, awful, awful things. No one, no one saw any beauty in them. Or if they did, they they didn't write a poetry, a poem about it. So, you know, people do feel differently in different ages. So great minds may think alike, but I don't, I think for in the case, for example, of uh of the Browning subterranean homesick blues, how can that not be directly that he has come across that poem and just been entranced by those rhyming words? It is interesting now that we think of him as a borrower or a reuser so centrally to, to, to look back and find all these places yeah. where it started. I mean, obviously you've, been pointing this out, you know, for 50 years, but but it isn't the way people think of him. And it is a process people go through individually or collectively as it's been as it's been discovered. Well, let's look at the, one of the first examples about Bunyan that where you do this. Um, this is a, a section early in chapter two. Bunyan, then, is very much Dylan's forebear, and there are many unnoticeable similarities of language in their work. It is from Bunyan, and certainly not from any rock and roll vocabulary, that Dylan gets this great and typical phrase from Joey on the Desire album. God's in heaven overlooking his preserve. And isn't this, for example, instantly recognizable as a line from the Dylan of the John Wesley Harding album? Pray who are your kindred there, if a man may be so bold. But it is not Bob Dylan, it is Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. And doesn't this comply almost exactly in rhythm and vocabularative tone? Oh, what dear daughter beneath the sun could treat a father so, to wait upon him hand and foot and always answer no. Thus, Dylan's Tears of Rage, which also illustrates, as do many other Dylan songs, its creator's concern for salvation. In terms of the parallels with Bunyan, this is the nearest to a merely coincidental one, and yet even here, coincidence is perhaps not the right word. So that's a deep example of what you're talking about, where the soaking of influence is so thorough that uh, 
it becomes difficult to distinguish between the two. Yeah. The salvation thing, of course, um, brings us to the other great commonality between Dylan and all these older people, and that is a familiarity with the language of the Bible, the King James Bible. When he was asked in 1969 by Rolling Stone about a lot of stuff, there was an assumption in, in the questioning that he wasn't interested in something like the Bible. And, um, and Dylan says, how do you know I don't read the Bible? And then um, when he has his born-again conversion, he says, um, I've always, I'd always read the Bible as literature, but it never occurred to me until now to take it on another level. So, you know, this runs through everything because the Bible was the book that people had. Once they were allowed to have it in English, uh, you know, and for many, many, many years in, uh, in Britain, people who went to church, peasants, were not allowed to hear it in English. They had to hear it in Latin, which they didn't understand a word of. But once, uh, once they were allowed to uh, hear the Bible in English, then, you know, it just soaked into everybody's consciousness and everybody's work. So this interplay between Dylan, in this case, Bunyan, um, it kind of opens the door to a lot of what Dylan's studies became in over, over 50 years. I mean, certainly not all, but, but a lot of it is finding these relationships, discussing Dylan in, you know, in context. How should Dylan listeners apply this? In other words, is this interesting? Is it set to expand what one can understand is coming from Dylan? Is it about an introduction to these people to go learn what they're about, to have your own context? What's the big value that comes out of identifying these? It enriches Dylan's work for me and, and obviously for a number of other people. Uh, look at uh, Scott Warmoth's work on Chronicles. Well, now, you know, Chronicles, as an example, where Dylan is actually interweaving many sentences from, well, in particular, Jack London, but many, many, many people into that, into that semi-fictional work. Uh, you know, what could be more interesting than, than finding that all that has been done? Um, whether you then rush off and decide that it's cheating or whether you decide that actually it must have been a great deal more work for Bill, for Dylan to inbuild those things so sneakily than it would have been to just write blah, blah, blah himself um, in the way that it rather seems to me he has done with the philosophy of modern song. So, you know, if you're, if you're that way inclined, of course it's enriching. I mean, I loved it when I found that Browning Vandals, handles, candles thing. But for some people, they just want uh they just want to enjoy Bob, uh, you know, and they hate they hate people like me analyzing it, you know. I think there's uh, uh what I've always wanted to stress in that in that regard is the difference between being a critic and being an interpreter. I've tried to never interpret him. That is to say. You know, like Weberman did, when he sings lady, he means oligarch, that sort of stuff. I mean, that's just rubbish, you know. Interpreting him, 
this song is about so and so. Well, you know, it may be, but it's there's a great deal more to a work of art than it's about, you know. Mona Lisa, it's about whether she has an enigmatic smile. No, it's a work of art and it has a great complexity to it, or it wouldn't be so hard to cue to see it at the Louvre. So, you know, but some people just, uh, they just want to get off on Bob uh, and they don't care about any of this. They're the people who used to stand up near the front in his concerts and shout, Maggie's Farm! That's what they wanted, you know. They just wanted Bob to rock and roll. And the fact is that he does rock and roll, but he, he used to do it rather better than most people because there was more in the words. And there was more in the words because uh, of all this other stuff, of the kind of complex, intelligent, well-read guy that Bob Dylan has always been. I think the middle ground, which is where it's most useful, is is in giving resonance to lots of these phrases, that they're impactful on their own, and they obviously make sense in the context of the song or, or strike us as art in the right way. But to all of a sudden know that there's echoes or innuendo or something that if you know it, you can bring to it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's fundamentally what your book does. I don't know the first time I read it or parts of it, but to all of a sudden realize that it's not just, it was incredibly enjoyable on the surface with, with what I brought to it, but to all of a sudden discover that extra stuff and these other relationships and get that context is I think what the whole rest of this chapter does. It starts to show that this isn't and casual fans probably have heard of one or two of these things. You know, this song came from that song or, you know, so even, even the very old one. Um, but to now know it's not just, you know, he, he remembered, you know, a, an old Scottish ballad and, and wrote new words to the tune. But this kind of sophistication, uh, I think, is why the book has been received the way it did. Let's look at another one of these Bunyan ones. Um where you actually go further on this idea of salvation, which is the second point that this starts to illustrate, which is it's not just this line or this stanza is about that, but there's recurring themes that go over songs and albums and over maybe a lifetime of the work and that those are there too. And that becomes a whole new level. So here you're talking about the issue of salvation that you mentioned before. All this search for the quintessential man comes into an intelligent concern for salvation, a concern Dylan stands by in much of his work. It is there and don't think twice it's all right, in the simple line, it is almost just a passing remark, gave her my heart but she wanted my soul, and in his tender appreciative to Ramona. Your cracked country lips I still wish to kiss, as to be by the strength of your skin. Your magnetic movements still capture the minutes I'm in. That strength is felt by him. It implies a given moral strength, a Laurentian awareness of the real derived from an alertness of the physical senses. Through the abrasive intelligence of work invested with such values, Dylan has changed a generation, has made it more sensitive to what is enhancing and what is impoverishing. It is as much as the artist can do. Yeah, I like that. I don't know what to, I don't know quite what to say about it. I, I mean, uh, obviously, not everyone is sensitive, and not everyone uh, uh, feels closer to God as a result of uh, considering questions of salvation. 
But Dylan, Dylan's very fierce on this very early on. You know, think of that moment in Don't Look Back where he's being interviewed by the Time magazine guy. And he, you know, Dylan is the hippest person on the planet at that point. He's very young, and yet everyone is telling him he's, you know, it. Uh, to an almost unex un unprecedented extent. And yet, instead of it completely going to his head, he sits down and he says to this guy from Time magazine, you're going to be dead. You're going to be off the earth, and so am I. And it could be tomorrow, it could be in 20 years, but that's going to happen. And how seriously you take yourself, how seriously you take your work should be in the light of that. That's not an exact quote from him, but it's it's absolutely what he's saying. That's remarkable from someone whose head could have been so easily turned to nothing but girls in Chelsea boots and being groovy. It suggests an immediate consciousness, a consistent consciousness of higher things. After that, you cover Dylan and, and Bunyan, as well as a whole lot of other folks. So we clearly don't have time to go through all of it here. Uh, D.H. Lawrence, Dunn, Blake, Elliot, Coolidge, Browning, to name a few. You talk about their work in relation to a big list of Dylan songs. Gates of Eden, uh, Baby Blue, Wedding Song, Ramona, Slow Train, Subterranean Homesick Blues, Ballad of, of a Thin Man, Desolation Row, a, a tiny example. So I, I want people to know there's extensive analysis of the relationship between Dylan's songs and all of these, uh, all this great literature in the book. Here's one small example. The clearest of Dylan's cross-references occurs in the penultimate verse of Desolation Row, a title, of course, not unlike The Wasteland, the verse that does more than simply mention Eliot specifically. And Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, fighting in the captain's tower, between the windows of the sea where lovely mermaids flow, and nobody has to think too much about Desolation Row. This parallels the ending of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea, by seagulls wreathed with seaweed red and brown, till human voices wake us and we drown. Same imagery, same contrast, same argument. Anything more you'd like to say just to kind of share or wrap up all of that analysis of uh, the English lit and Dylan? Only really that, uh, only really that um, when, you, when you hear them next to each other like that, I mean, first of all, you know, it seems it seems undeniable to me that uh, that the one chimes with the other, but I would also say that uh, the Elliot is better. <laughs> um, but Dylan seems to feel more hostile to his own verse than that because it's the one he always misses out when he sings it live now, uh, and I wish he wouldn't leave it out because it's terrific. You know, I love the I love the whole idea of uh, you know Ezra Pound and T. S. Eliot fighting in the captain's tower uh, while all these people laugh at them. Well, why do you think he does that? I think partly it's just a kind of jokey playing with the uh, with the received notion that um, 
you know, that on the one hand, they were rivals in their heyday. And on the other hand, it's also very well known that uh, Ezra Pound tidied up and edited the wasteland. So, you know, he's t- Dylan is touching on their kind of edgy relationship, maybe. But he's also just showing that he knows this stuff, it seems to me, you know. I mean, I noticed that um, almost all these examples, they're almost all 1964 to 6, and almost all of them are actually 65, dead on 65, from uh, Gates of Eden to Desolation Row. And then you move on uh, to American literature for another big section of this chapter. Let's hear a little bit, I think, where you introduce that. As for what Dylan has taken from the mainstream of American literature, well, to deal with his relations to modern American poetry alone would take a whole book, so that what follows can only hope to provide some kind of eccentric, personalized outline. While there has also been a formidable amount of the kind of quick, urban prose that one side of Bob Dylan enjoys so much and has taken some strengths from, including Woody Guthrie's autobiography, already dealt with elsewhere in this study, Steinbeck, Nathaniel West, to whom Dylan made acknowledgement by calling one of his new morning songs Day of the Locusts, Chandler, Damon Runyon, Dos Passos, Fitzgerald, Mailer, Miller, Kerouac, Burroughs, and so on and so on right through to Hunter S. Thompson. Too much to disentangle here. Is there any difference in the way he treats the American, obviously much later literature and what he did in the older English? I'm probably guessing here, but uh, I would suspect that the more traditional stuff, the older stuff, he picked up from his brilliant, inspirational English teacher, Boniface J. Rolfson, at Hibbing High School. And I think that, uh, you know, he says somewhere in, um, in, the, in the notes, the interview stuff with uh, Biograph, 1985, he says that the jazz and the beat poets, that more modern stuff, really hit him hard and left everything else in the dust. Well, clearly it didn't, he didn't leave it in, all in the dust because it's all in there in his work. In other words, he certainly had um, an easier and immediate simpatico with the beat poets uh, uh, and so on. I don't suppose he spent, I might be wrong, but I don't suppose he spent much time reading uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Whether you need to read all of Howell before you can um, be influenced by it and and quote from it and, uh, you know, riff off it, I don't know. But um, as we know, Bob can easily just snatch a line from somewhere. I also want to say that um, when I'm writing about that sort of American literature. Well, any of it, really. When I was being trained as a sort of literary student, the lost generation, that is to say, Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, that was about the most recent American literature that we ever got directed towards. All the other stuff, you know. Well, let's look at the, the place you start talking about that group of writers. Patchen, Jack Kerouac, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and Ginsburg between them constructed an artistic milieu that Dylan, some years later, seemed so avant-garde in launching upon a mass market and a new generation. The Dylan of 1965 to 1966 swims in a milieu taken from these men and their contemporaries. 
In a way, all Dylan did with it was to put it up on stage with a guitar. His greatness lies in the way he did that, the cohesive, individual voice with which he represented it and the brilliance of his timing in doing so. Of Ginsburg, someone whose relationship with Dylan is very visible and yet I think perhaps underexplored, you say he opened for Dylan and his whole generation the window on the bright, babbling, surreal, self-indulgent, sleazy, intensely alert world no predecessor had visited. I don't know how I can um, elaborate on that on that description, but it's uh, you know people didn't write that stuff down before because it wasn't polite. It was uh, you know it was not what you what you wrote in literature. Poets who who break through some barrier, it's always in that way. You know, I mean, T. S. Eliot found a modern voice in his day, which was also a challenge to, to the niceties of previous poetry, the rules of, you know, what got published, I mean, apart from anything else, because obviously there were a lot of things that uh, got banned in those days, not, not as idiotically as in Florida now, but, uh, but nevertheless, you know, there were, there were uh, some of these manuscripts had to be published by this kind of weird press in Paris having been rejected by American and British publishers. You know, for anyone who'd never come across Allen Ginsberg before, he was quite something. But of course, on the other hand, a lot of people were very aware of him by the mid-60s. You know, he and those other poets filled the Albert Hall one time, just like Dylan did. You know, a remarkable uh, moment in, in cultural change. It's nice that we have, it's a little bit later, but we have that video of Dylan, of uh, Ginsburg at the seaside resort in the new uh, Scorsese movie, talking to the old ladies and losing them drastically after about four lines when they realized that this is not um, yes. who they thought he might yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, uh, one example of how fresh Dylan appeared to be to at least to music audiences uh, from 65 is, I think it's in the spring of 65, there's a recording of him singing Love Minus Zero, No Limit in America somewhere. And when he gets to the line, people draw conclusions on the wall, the audience laughs because this is such a kind of left of center sense of humor. I mean, to anyone who hears it after about 1968, it's obviously it's just a it's just a good line. But uh, originally in '65, when he first presents it live, it's uh, it's so wacky that people are, are laughing. I mean, with him laughing with him, and yet it's and and yet you know in retrospect it's such a simple joke. At the World of Bob Dylan recently, Harry Hugh did a presentation on Dylan's humor that was very well received. Been oh yes. I'd like to have heard that. One of the things he mentions astutely is all these Dylan lines, and there were a lot then. I think you may be talking about Hollywood Bowl. I know there's a couple of California recordings. There's one in San Francisco made by Allen Ginsberg that in that time that you're talking about. But there's tons of Dylan that audience laughed at as he went. And Harry's point is only later did those same lines become become reverential, and you were supposed to you know, nod and pray. 
you know, and he's saying D- Dylan didn't change. The audience changed. The perception changed of what those words meant, yes. but the funny was still there. Yeah. That's good. This chapter ends with a, with a quotation from Howell. And then you say. There is not one line from this huge sprawling poem that cannot claim to be the deranged inspired midwife of the Dylan of the mid 1960s. The Dylan of the motorcycle black Madonna, two wheel gypsy queen and the rest. Dylan's achievement subsequently, of course, has included the remarkable fact of his being able to turn right round and become a major influence on Allen Ginsberg, as Ginsberg's liner notes to Dylan's Desire album testify. As urged at the start of this chapter, literature, folk song, music, everything connects. One of the things that Ginsberg says specifically in a little booklet is that uh, Dylan, Dylan taught him to break his long lines down i.e. into shorter lines. Motorcycle, Black Madonna, Two-Wheel Gypsy Queen. That's the Ginsbergian long line influence, as, as well as the sort of bumping together of, of surprising juxtapositions of, of ideas, of words. That concludes our discussion of Chapter 2 about Bob Dylan and literature. In Chapter 3, coming up soon on this podcast, we'll talk about Bob Dylan and rock and roll. Thanks to Allison Rapp for doing the reading for today's episode and Michael Gray for joining us to discuss the book. Please check the show notes and get a copy of Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan. Thanks for listening. 